It's good to come and express our neediness before God. That's prerequisite of being a Christian, realizing how desperately needy you are, we are. I remember not long ago, we invited someone to church and they came here to grace with us and we sang that song and the person's not a, not a believer in Jesus and afterward she said, I so wanted to sing that song. I realized deep down something in me that needs God, but I just couldn't get it to the surface. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's my prayer, that when we come, we'll be able to get our neediness to the surface because we do a lot, and our culture teaches us consistently to, to neglect that truth, that we are needy. We are needy. We come here to build faith because of our neediness and build hope in Jesus. That's the goal every time we gather. And we believe that when we attend to God's word and express worship to him and the spirit works, that our neediness becomes more evident, especially when our lives rub up against each other and we get in touch with not only our neediness but one another's and then we run to God. We are desperately needy and frail and weak and need him. And that's why we come. So uh, we are going to dig into the book of 2 Peter. If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Peter, we are going to have our reading service. If you've never been to one of our reading services, well, this morning we'll change that. Uh, here we are. And this, this may be new to some of you. Maybe you've never experienced something like this. Some people... Over the years, we've noticed have a hard time with this. They'll, they'll just say, where was the sermon? Well, I want you to know that I'll do a little bit of sermon now. But really, I'm just preparing. I'm doing the introduction for the recitation of the letter of 2 Peter. And that will be the sermon. 2 Peter is a sermon. It's a letter written to churches that are struggling, but it's written to us as well by Peter. So... Make sure you listen to 2 Peter as the sermon this morning, written and spoken this morning to feed your soul, to deepen your faith, to deepen your hope. That's why we gather. The reason we do reading services at Grace, typically what we do is preach through books of the Bible, and we begin preaching through those books by devoting a whole service to a reading of that book or a portion of it if it's really big. And then a few months later, we'll typically have a reflection service where we hear from the people of God. Well, this morning, we are having our reading service in Second Peter. The reason we do that is because, first of all, it's a command in the Bible to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. And so we want to be obedient to the scriptures and to God, so we do it for that reason. But we also believe that the word of God is the word of God, and it's intended and able to have a powerful effect in our lives. And, and we can just present it trusting that it will do its work. Remember, I've many times given a Bible to someone and wanted to be there over their shoulder saying, ah, don't start with Leviticus. And... and um, 
sort of guide them through it, showing that I, I just didn't have the kind of trust in just the Bible that I should. And so this is an effort to trust the Bible in this way. But uh, let's think about this book that we're reading through this morning. Second Peter is written by the Apostle Peter, as we'll hear now. I'm going to read the first two verses, explain them a little bit, and then hit on just a few major themes we need to be attentive to as we hear the book read. Let's pray as we go to God's word. Help us now, Lord, to learn all you have for us here in your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read the first two verses together. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. So we find that Peter is writing this letter. And as we will see, this is a warning. This letter is primarily a sober warning, a serious caution to God's people. Yes, it's instructive. Yes, it's, it's comforting as well. But it is a serious warning to God's people. There is false teaching among his hearers. There are false teachers among his hearers. And he realizes how devastating false teaching is and can be. And so he is warning them as seriously as he can. It's a warning against false teachers and false teaching. And the solution to this false teaching and this influence that they're having is reminders of the glory and sufficiency of Christ and the certainty of his coming judgment. And when they realize these things, remember these things, the goal is that it will stir in them growth in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. When we know Jesus... When we understand Jesus, when we commune with him, abide with him, depend on him, put our trust in him, it makes everything else right and it makes error obvious. And it removes its effect from us and its compelling power from us when we see Jesus as he really is. So that's the point. It's, it's a warning. It's a letter of warning. And I, I want you to realize that for many of us this morning, This will be a very hard letter for us to hear if we're really paying attention. If you don't just let the words go by, if you really absorb them, this is a challenging letter for 21st century Southern California living Christians and non-Christians even more so. Because it has a message that we're not prepared for by a trivializing culture. By a culture that just lacks categories for things like the wrath of God, God's anger and adamant opposition to all sin and evil, God's hatred of lies that lead to destruction in our lives. And it teaches this letter, as we'll see, a a foretelling, a prophetic word about the second coming of Jesus where he comes in judgment and God brings severe judgment to the world. We just don't have much of a category for those things in our society. 
that there's a right place to punish sin. There's a right place to judge sin. And almighty, holy God is the one who will do that, and he promises it. And that understanding should have a huge effect on our lives. We shouldn't dismiss it as some old-fashioned, puritanical way of thinking. It's amazing how embarrassed even Christians can be by the Bible's teaching about hell, about judgment. When it is intended to bring, bring great comfort to God's people, when we realize he will make all things right one day. He will make all justice finally come to pass. Are you frustrated by injustice in the world? Don't you long for a day when peace will come and indeed the swords will be beat into plowshares and warring armies will finally lay down their arms once and for all and all the injustice will be gone and all the evil will be gone. God hates sin and evil and injustice more than you could ever imagine hating it. And so it's a good word of comfort that should also strike fear in our hearts when we're warned of that coming day. And that's what Peter's doing here. He's warning us of false teachers and he wants us to see our lives now in light of the coming judgment. And so uh, we're told that it's Simon Peter writing this letter. He's the author of this letter, the Apostle Peter. Notice what he calls himself, a servant. It's a fine translation. My, however, my... Uh, one of my professors at, at, in seminary, he, he want, one of his life's goals before he died was to do the very best work he, go, he could to influence translations, to translate the word here, doulos, as slave rather than servant. I remember one time in his, I'm not going to do it, his, um, his New Zealand accent, he, he said, when you... Hear the word servant, you think of a man in a tuxedo bringing you brandy. When you hear of a slave, you think of chains, which is what you should think of when you hear this word. This is not someone who's, who's just serving. Yes, that comes with being a slave, but this, this slave word means you have no independent rights any longer. Yes, it's loaded with all sorts of negative connotations, but, but someone who has given themselves to the, the absolute service of the master, and this master is wonderful and benevolent and kind and, and keeps your life in security. And so Paul has, has surrendered his rights, his independence, his identity, and he has aligned himself with his master and his master's ways so that he is now fully formed in that master's service. And, and Paul says, I'm a slave, I, I'm a doulos to this master Jesus. And then he says, and I'm an apostle. It's good to put those two words together. One is a very humbling idea. The other comes with the authority that apostles had. Those representations of Jesus who speak with the authority of Christ and write inspired scripture as we have here. So he's a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's Peter. Remember Peter? Oh, he had great victories and dismal failures. He's the one who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, heaven revealed this to you, Peter. You didn't get this right. God himself has revealed this to you. And then a few verses later, Jesus calls him Satan. 
and says, get behind me, because he's resisting Jesus' journey to the cross. This is Peter who had the faith, unlike the other disciples, to get out of the boat and walk on water, and then becoming an emblem of taking his eyes off of Jesus and sinking and lacking faith in that. And Peter's the one who had the boldness very often, who becomes the lead apostle of the, of the, the, the church in Jerusalem and uh, among the Jews. And he is the one who boldly said, I will never deny you right before he denies Jesus three times. But here he is, an apostle, a changed man because of the resurrection. No longer a coward, no longer timid and cowering and denying, but boldly, at cost of his life as a martyr, he proclaims Jesus and is helping his church to grow with this message he gives this morning. Peter is great encouragement to me. One of the reasons we wanted to follow the gospel of Mark with the epistles of Peter is because Peter gets a pretty realistic picture of his failures in Mark. And now we get a man transformed by the resurrection power of Jesus, teaching us these things, who's been restored. Oh, he denies Jesus, but Jesus comes to him and forgives him and restores him to the point where now he is the apostle leading the way for these churches and for us now. Peter, the apostle, who's a slave and an apostle of Jesus, to those who have, very important, obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. So although he does come in apostolic authority, he wants them to know that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. That God's ways don't lead to a caste system among God's people, a pecking order, a hierarchy, but there is an equal standing With the apostles, God's people have because our source of our standing before God does not come from our credentials or our accomplishments or some virtue or character display in us. It comes from the gift of faith we've obtained from outside of ourselves, from God, that he has given us. That's why proud Christian are two words that should never go together. We've obtained a faith, a rest, a hope, a confidence in Jesus. That's it. So the Christian way is not we strive and accomplish for God. It's a gift he gives us of faith and trusting in Jesus' accomplishment for us. That's grace by faith that leads to an equal standing. And this comes about how? By the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God's righteousness displayed in Christ, given to us in Christ, is the basis of our faith. It's the core of our faith. It's the object of our faith. And the object of your faith is what really matters. You can have the most measly faith, but if the object is powerful and sufficient, your faith is enough. And Jesus is the one in whom we have our faith. And notice it says he's our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He is none less than God. Imagine good old monotheistic, one believing in one God. He's been a good Jew his whole life who from his earliest days would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And now he's come to understand Jesus, the Son, to the point where he's able and willing and joyfully calling him God. 
He's our God and Savior. Only God could take away the sins of the world. Only God could satisfy in his sacrifice as Jesus does. He's our God and our Savior. He's the one who saves us. And if you don't think you need saving, this is irrelevant to you. Jesus will probably then be nothing nothing more than a, a moral teacher. But to get there, you need to disassociate him from all the things this letter says is true of him as well as being a great moral teacher. He is our Savior. What does he save us from? Ourselves, our sin, our filthy rags. That is all we are able to do. And we depend on his righteousness and his perfect death on a cross. And we simply trust. Don't despise the simplicity of faith. Jesus has done it all. We rest in him, his finished work for us. And we look to him. And we listen to the word that tells us of him. And we then have what? Grace, verse 2, and peace multiplied, increasing. Multiplying faith. That's what he wants for us. That's what Peter's praying for us in this passage. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Do you want grace? I do. Do you want peace? I do. Well, we have grace and we have great peace in the knowledge of God, in the knowledge of God that Jesus brings to us. And it goes on, we'll dip into verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He gives us the knowledge we need, the sufficient knowledge we need of him in Christ to have everything we need for grace and peace and life and godliness. Lives that are transformed and forever different because of Jesus. Josh uh, made this beautiful um, picture for us of our series through First and Second Peter. It's a powerful message. You know, please know that these things aren't clip art. <laughs> There's a lot of thought and, and meaning packed in these things as he, he wonderfully helps us think through these things. But do you see what's going on in this, this image You've got darkness, and that's what we've got. We've got darkness in this world. In this letter, we see the darkness is displayed in this false teaching that's leading people into greater darkness and what they believe and how they live. But there's light as well. There is light on the horizon as the new day dawns. And that new day dawns because of Jesus, the Son of God, who is also this image of the sun rising in the eastern horizon, who brings a new day's dose of warmth and light and life for us. That's what he provides. And we look to that day, as this book tells us to do. And in the meantime, we look to the prophet, We look to the word of God spoken and written as he holds forth this light. Pay attention, you'll hear these images in the the book of 2 Peter. The, The prophet holds forth this light that points us ahead to that ultimate light. Oh, that light may seem just flickering and measly, this side of the ultimate dawning, but it's not. It points ahead to that great dawning one day when all things will be made new. That's what this letter is about. This image is what this letter is about. We look to the light we find in Jesus 
with hope and joy and faith awaiting that day when that light will be so resplendently displayed it will be undeniable for every human that's ever lived. That's what we long for. That's what we look to. And so this image sets us up to understand the letter we'll hear in just a few minutes. Multiplying grace is what we're after here. Let me just highlight a few themes that we should, should pay special attention to notice as we read through this book. Peter is preaching with authority. He's preaching with, with a, 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 some anger, godly anger. He's preaching with, with a seriousness and a sobriety. Peter, it, it, don't miss it when he says he's motivated in writing this letter because he knows his death is right around the corner. You'll hear him say, I write this to you knowing that my departure is near. I'm not long for this world. I can tell my martyrdom's right on the threshold that I'm standing on. Just know, imagine what it's like to write a, a, a letter, a, a parting shot, a final farewell exhortation when you know your death is impending and the churches you love are in great danger of being led astray by false teaching. Remember when Paul said goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20? He's passing the baton and he preaches with anguish and in earnestness and sobriety and seriousness and warning. Well, Peter even more so here because he knows his death is about to happen. And he probably will never see them, speak to them, or write to them again. That's how we need to live our lives. Because our death is impending for every one of us. Let's live with a seriousness. It's Spurgeon, I think, who said, we should preach as dying men to dying men. It's that serious, because we are all dying, and that's what Peter realizes. And so this couldn't be more serious. So as he writes to them, he writes with a strong denunciation of false teachers. He knows that loving God means loving truth, because God calls himself the God of truth. And I want you to notice and be ready for what he says and how he says it because he doesn't just denounce false teaching. Listen to him. Denounce false teachers. We've got a strange disembodied idea of lies and sin and evil that isn't profoundly personal which is how God sees those things. You'll hear Peter not just correct errors in teaching, but he will call out the obvious ways that false teaching has taken root in the lives of the false teachers, and they then are the kind of individuals, deviant, selfish, greedy, sarcastic, skeptical, destructive, that you should stay away from. Christians are to be warm, loving, compassionate, gracious, patient people. But we also are ones who need to call evil, evil, and darkness, darkness. And rebuke not just ideas, but people propagating those ideas. Yes, never with self-righteousness. But with strength and clarity. And, and we've got to know God's word to be able to do that. Their wrong beliefs leads to wrong behavior in their lives and to, in the lives of those who listen that leads to destruction. And if you love people, you'll hate anything and oppose anything that will destroy them. The second thing we need to think, and I, I'm, just, I'm so struck by how hard these things in this letter are for us to hear. They're so countercultural. 
Christ's return, his second coming, the judgment that is coming. It's being mocked, apparently. It's being refuted. It's being dismissed and done away with because it's been so long. These false teachers are saying, oh, where's his appearing? Where's his coming? I thought he said he was coming back. You think that was an issue then. How about now, 2,000 years later? We can seem so foolish holding out hope that Jesus will come back and make everything right. Oh, yeah, pie in the sky. Oh, yeah, good for you. Just wait. Keep waiting for Jesus to come. We do get mocked. But you see, we're looking at the flickering light because it points us to that ultimate hope. And listen to why. Please listen to why it hasn't been a long time and is coming when you hear the letter. Things are pretty different from God's perspective than they are from ours. And so his second coming is mocked. The judgment is mocked. The wrath of God. Peter lays it out there and says, oh, he's not slow in coming. He's not delaying. He's not uh, dismissing or ignoring sin and evil. No, he's coming at it full force. His patience has kept that from happening yet. But we indeed need to have a message of sinners in the hands of an angry God. I'm from Connecticut, do you know? The home state of Jonathan Edwards. Yes, did you know that? That the nutmeg state birthed our greatest American mind who's ever lived. Well, here we are on our vacation this summer. Went to South Windsor in Connecticut, the birthplace of Jonathan Edwards. Almost no one in Connecticut or New England or South Windsor even knows that. Uh, They're a bit embarrassed by it when they find it out. But there's his birthplace. The house on the property where his house was, where he was born, is for sale. (gasps) I think we should raise some money and buy that house. Um, It's not the very same house, but it's on the property right where the house was. So that's the front yard of the house. And, And we went here as well, just a little ways down the road to Enfield. And you're wondering what that stone says? Here's what it says. This boulder marks the place where stood the second meeting house of the first church of Christ in Enfield, built in A.D. 1704 and used for worship until 1775. In this meeting house on July 8th, 1741, during the revival known as the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards preached his celebrated sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. First time I ever heard about this sermon was in American Lit junior year at Valley Regional High School. And we read the first part of the sermon where he talks about the wrath of God and it was used to mock puritanical ways of thinking as so outdated we need to get away from it. Sadly, we never read to the rest of the sermon where he talks about the grace of God and saving us from that coming judgment. Is there a place for preaching sermons with titles like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? We have one before us we'll hear in just a few minutes. If you think hell, fire, and brimstone has nothing to do with the message of Christianity or of Jesus, you need to pay better attention to the words of Jesus himself and of the scriptures. And so it it indeed is part of the message. Third thing, and then it'll be just one more quick one. The solution to error in belief and acts, uh, in belief and behavior, is knowledge and faith in Jesus, in Christ and his work. The, the truth of God is not something we manufacture within ourselves and then depend on. It comes from outside of ourselves. It's factual, it's historical, it's embodied in a person named Jesus who walked this earth and historically was here and lived and died and rose from the dead. H.L. Mencken said that faith is belief in the illogical, which is improbable. That is not what faith is for the Christian. 
It's anchoring our lives in truth, objective truth outside of ourselves. And that knowledge is given to us in Christ and it's verifiable and it's there and we trust it. And faith sets us free. Truth, faith in the truth sets us free, Jesus says. We have everything we need, we just heard, for life and godliness, for grace and peace in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We avail ourselves to the revelation of God in Christ in his word and we grow in grace and peace and life and godliness. And our faith leads to freedom and changed lives and heads and hearts transformed by a growing faith in Jesus Christ. And the last thing I want you to realize as you listen to this letter, realize how often Peter says, I'm reminding you, I'm reminding you, I'm stirring you up by way of reminders. We are obsessed with trendy, with cool, with cutting edge, with avant-garde. And over and over again, the Bible says, no, you need to hear a very, very old story again. You need to take the Lord's Supper one more time. You need to read your Bible one more time. You need to be reminded. Most of us here don't need some brand new information. We need to take, for some of us, a story we've known a very long time and draw more faith and hope from Jesus than ever and who he is. Let me read this to you as we go to our reading. Um, a man, Dr. Congdon, once approached Bible teacher R.A. Torrey, who was a Biola guy, complaining that he could get nothing out of his Bible study. Please tell me how to study it so that it will mean something to me. Read it, replied Dr. Torrey. I do read it. Read it some more. How? Take some book and read it 12 times a day for a month. Torrey recommended 2 Peter what we're about to hear. Dr. Congdon later said, my wife and I read 2 Peter three or four times in the morning, two or three times in, at noon, and two or three times at dinner. Soon, I was talking 2 Peter to everyone I met. It seemed as though the stars in heavens were singing the story of 2 Peter. I read 2 Peter on my knees, marking passages, teardrops mingled with the crayon colors, and I said to my wife, see how I've ruined this part of my Bible? Yes, she said. But as the pages have been getting black, your life has been getting white. That's it. That's the effect the Word of God has on our lives. And as we hear Timothy recite this, please be asking God to let the Word of God wash over you and bring a transformation that leads to greater faith in Jesus and that multiplies grace and peace and life and godliness to your daily living. Lord, help us now. As we hear your word, uh, encouraged and motivated by the man who's memorized it, but not distracted by him, please. Help us to take to heart this message that Peter wrote so long ago that couldn't be more relevant and timely than it is now. Help us, Lord, to focus on the light that is here and to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election Sure, for if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation 
has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to Tartarus, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives he saw and heard, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. Their blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. 
I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen.